Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. What does the future have in store? Medicine, robotics, artificial intelligence, energy production and genetic engineering will change our world. But how? This month, Jim Al-Khalili and a panel of experts debate the topic and predict the answers. Thank you very much, John. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. So this is going to be a fun evening. Um, before I introduce my, my panel, my colleagues here, just to say something about the format. The idea is we're each going to say something about our contribution to the book. So we'll have about 10 minutes each, and then hopefully we'll, there'll be enough time for lots of questions and answers from, from the audience. So how should I do it? From, from my left to right. Um, so first off, uh, Phil Ball is uh, a science writer and uh, broadcaster. I've known Phil, Phil for many years. Um, uh, I, that, that's, I don't have to say any more about you, do I? No, 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 no that's, he's that's a, fine. He's Probably. a polymath. He writes lots of stuff. He's very, very clever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would do, too. Next is Dame Julia Slingo, who was the chief scientist of the Met Office. Uh, and then Arati Prasad, who is a biologist and science writer and, and journalist and have been, been writing about stuff for many years. And last but not least, Anna Plazajski, who has almost, almost finished her PhD in material science at uh, UCL. I was going to call her Dr. Plazajski, but apparently the Viva isn't till December, and we would only, we, we, yeah, we would just <laughs> jinx it, wouldn't we? Yeah. Um, so, we're each going to uh, say a little bit about uh, our contributions to this book. So, profile books, so I, I published a, uh, a book, uh, I published, I didn't publish, profile books published the book. I edited a book last year called Aliens, and, uh, and in fact, I had an event uh, here to talk about that. Uh, last year, um, and the idea was that I edit it and I bring together um, specialists in, in various areas to, to each write an essay, a contribution, a chapter to the book. Uh, and so this is the second in that series, uh, and it's about the science uh, of the future. Um, and uh, I think if you look around uh, over, over the years, well, science fiction writers are very good at uh, painting a picture of what the world would be like, and you, know, you can just watch any number of um, Hollywood movies, probably starring Tom Cruise, to see what the what future technologies are going to be like, whether it's virtual reality or artificial intelligence or whatever. Um, but a lot of writers have um, tried to cover what science is going to be like in the future, or the technology of the future based on the science that we know today. Um, what's different about this book is that Every contributor is an expert in their own area. So, you know, who better to get to write about the challenges of climate change than the uh, ex-chief scientist of the Met Office, for example? Um, and so the nice thing about this book is that these are people who know what they're talking about, talking about their field of science, rather than someone um, trying to sort of cover a, a, a wide range. Um, so this first slide, what I want to do is say something about, because a lot of the time when you talk about the, uh, sort of the future of, of science and technology, it does tend to be very sort of futuristic Hollywoody and what wondrous things we're going to be able to do with virtual reality and so on, or nanotechnology. Uh, and we sometimes forget that science of the future is going to ha have, have to help solve many of the challenges facing the world. So this is a, uh, a famous sustainable development goals at the United Nations uh, 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 listed a couple of years ago. And in a sense, it's sort of motherhood and apple pie. Yes, of course, we, know. we make sure there's no poverty by 2030, we make sure that no one goes hungry, we eradicate all disease, and so on, uh, solve 
climate change. Um, but it's still, it's, it's something to aim at. But it also gives you an idea of, of, of uh, what we are going to have to use science for. Now, science in itself, we always say that science in itself is neither good nor evil. Uh, it's how, how we use it. And one of the things that's changed in recent years is that the scientists themselves have realized that they have a moral obligation to think about the ethics of, of, of some of these, uh, the technologies, the spin-offs from the, from the science. And I'm sure uh, some of the contributors will say something uh, about that. But for example, uh, I just thought, I'd just, just to cheer you up, to get things going, list some of the challenges of demographics. So <laughs> Phil's going to say something about demographics. But you know, we know we have an aging population, which is a good thing, I guess, but brings with it challenges. We have an increased population. Population movement, there's a, there's a very good chance that, you know, with rises in sea levels affecting coastal areas around the globe, we're going to see huge migrations of, 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 of people moving around the planet. We know there are the challenges of radical ideologies in environment and sustainability issues. In technology, we have a, a, a whole different set of, of challenges and, and uh, concerns. Cybersecurity is one. I guess the good thing about cybersecurity is lots of jobs are going to be available in that area <laughs> in the coming years. Um, AI and robotics, increasingly we hear about artificial intelligence and, and, and robotics and what that's what's going to do uh, in terms of affecting our jobs. And again, Phil will say something about this. Genetic engineering, Arity is going to talk a little bit about um, uh, how that may be changing, uh, is going to change, well not may, it will change our world. Uh, then, of course, also in, in medicine, we have the concerns of pandemics and antimicrobial resistance. Dementia is one of the problems that comes with uh, longevity and, and aging population. All of, I mean, these are just a few of the problems that we're, we're facing that science is going to have to, uh, to face up to. But it's not just science that's going to solve these problems. I always say that you know, solutions will require political will, economic policies, innovation, education, and, and science. So part of the book and part of the, the things, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, some of these contributions are about the excitement of new science and technology and the wondrous ways it'll change the world. But also, uh, we look at some of the issues that we know are challenging us in the 21st century and, and what science may be able to do to, to uh, soften the blow, if not solve the problems. Um, I wanted to, before I hand over, I wanted to say something about how, we, how science and human knowledge develops. So it's a bit of, uh, bit of maths for you. Well, it's not, it's a, it's a simple graph, don't worry. Okay, if I plot human progress against time and I stick a, some arbitrary point, that's our now. And so that red line is human progress. Um, it's very flat. Uh, I, that the, the origin could be some arbitrary point back in the mists of time thousands of years ago. Uh, and you see, the reason I, I show it, and it's a curve, is that we tend to think that progress is linear. You know, if you think about, so uh, to give you a nice example, we've had the internet and the World Wide Web for 25 years, give or take. And so when we think about what the future might hold, we'll say, well, look, 25 years ago, we only just started using the internet and the World Wide Web. What is the equivalent huge thing, revolution, that's going to change our lives in the next 25 years. It'll be the equivalent of, of the, the, the web and the internet, right? Well, no, because science doesn't progress and knowledge doesn't progress linearly. It progresses exponentially. The equivalent of you know, the revolution that we've seen to our lives 
you know, think, you know, show someone of you know, 25, 30 years ago, show them an iPhone. It'll be almost like magic that you have this, you know, it'll be, you know, straight out of Star Trek. You know, you have this c computer that in your pocket that does everything. And that's changed our world in 25 years. The equivalent change, potentially, I would argue, uh, thanks to AI, may tap in the next 10 years or 15 years. Not, we don't have to wait 25 years because science uh, develops, uh, progresses um, uh, exponentially. We can't predict the future. Uh, you know, you can have, you know, science fiction writers are very good. You know, I, I, I went to see um, uh, the new Blade Runner film. And of course, before I went to watch it, I thought I'd watch the, the, the original one with the much younger Harrison Ford. Uh, and I'm reminded at the start of it, he's sitting reading a newspaper. People are always just reading newspapers. No one, no, not an iPhone in sight. But there are flying cars. <laughs> you know, it just goes to show that, you know, we can't, we can never predict precisely what, what the future will hold. You know, yes, they will, you know, I don't know where you're going to have robot pet dogs or, or, or whether we will <laughs> one day have flying cars. Um, a lot of the technological developments we know will happen because the science is known now. And I think some of the, 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 uh, the contributors are going to say something about what, what is very likely to happen and how it might change our world in the coming decades, certainly you know, within, our, within our, our lifetimes. But then there will be also be the surprises that no one, no one really uh, expected. So this book is about lots of different things. It's about the surprises that may come. We can, be, we can speculate. I mean, I went sort of a bit off the scale on the last, in the last chapter of the book. Uh, the publishers asked me to really just, you know, uh, Try, try and think what it might be like in the distant future. So I said, okay, so, so I'm going to talk about the possibility of teleportation and time travel. Since neither of them um, actually break any laws of physics, you know, why not? But they're not likely to be uh, here in, in our lifetimes. That's for the very far future. Okay, so there's that, the, the excitement of science, there's the technologies that are, that are going to be built on the science of today, and then there are also the, the challenges that the science of today, the technology of tomorrow is going to have to face. I will now pass over to Phil, uh, who will say a little bit more about, well, pretty something. much some stuff. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. That's, I, that's, I know, but he's going to talk a lot. That's my speciality. Okay. And you're going to carry on, you're going to be just seated. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to do that if, if uh, you want to do it that way, or maybe. No, 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 you, well, it's up to you. I mean, okay. I'm just saying I don't want others who'd rather stand up than feel obliged to st remain seated because no, you're too lazy up. to get off your ass. <laughs> all right. I, well, I can see the screen here. It's all very nice. Okay, fine. Um, I tried. As, <laughs> as Jim said, um, my chapter in the book is about demographics, but I kind of looked at this panel and I thought, well, that we might want something a bit sort of futury in there, and there are some gaps you know, that I wanted to try to fill in. And uh, what you, you, you could think of what I'm going to talk about as kind of demographics 2,200. Um, let's uh, project that far forward and see what's going to happen. And of course, um, when we're looking that far forward, there's only one big question that we all really need to know, and that is, is AI going to have wiped us out? <laughs> and anyone who gets their future from science fiction, and many of us do, might, want, might well want to respond, well, duh, have you not been paying attention? Because, of course, that's what's <laughs> going to happen. Um, so while I'm dealing in proof by Hollywood, 
I want to give you a little mind map, uh, a, holly, a movie-inflected mind map of some of the things I want to try to talk about very briefly. And all of these are topics talked about by others much more expertly in the book. And um, I want to just give you a whistle-stop tour of where some of these things stand. Um, and I want to start with robotics. And let's face it, the age of the robot takeover is upon us. It has already begun. Robots can do most things already. They can drive cars. They can look after children. They're getting to be pretty good doctors. They will be uh, better than, than human doctors before long. Uh, they'll probably be better chefs, amongst other things. Um, first of all, I want to make three points. Um, it's meaningless to talk about the effect of robotics on human life and work and society because there are countless such effects, and they depend crucially on where you live and what you do and what sort of uh, professional and personal skills you possess. Secondly, robots might be able to defy Asimov's three laws of robotics, but there is no reason to believe that they can defy the laws of market economics. And that's why we don't already have robots cooking our meals. We could in principle, but we don't. Thirdly, um, I think robots will demonstrate a historical truth, which is that people who are not involved in economic productivity, in some sense, tend to have less, if any, political power. So that, I think, is the, the real truth of this uh, life of leisure that we're going to, to, to lead once robots do everything for us. OK, how do you make robots ever smarter? Well, the current favorite answer of movie makers, uh, whenever they need to invoke some stupendous computer resource that will lead to human-like AI, is uh, go for quantum computing. And um, this illustrates a general misconception about quantum computing, which is that it's, like, it's going to be like what we've got already, only more so. Um, so the, the, the idea is that we'll use the rules of quantum mechanics to manipulate bits then that will give you thousands of times more computational power uh, because you can do, the, the story is often you can do lots of computations in parallel, or as some people would have it, actually in parallel universes. Um, now, the fact is that because quantum computers work in ways that are qualitatively different to our conventional classical computers, they will do qualitatively different things in some ways. That's to say they will be able to do some tasks much better, especially ones that involve things like factorization or searching databases or simulating our material world at the atomic and molecular level. They'll do that very efficiently and accurately. But it's far from clear at this stage that they will be an improvement on what we already have for all tasks or even for most tasks. That said, quantum computing has made extraordinarily rapid progress in just the past few years. We've suddenly jumped from talking about quantum computers as a hypothetical possibility to having real devices that you can actually use. And I do mean that you can use, because IBM, for example, has uh, made available its so-called uh, quantum experience, quantum computer, as a cloud-based cloud online resource that anyone can register to use, and then you submit your quantum circuit that you design and wait for your, uh, your turn in the queue to come round, and your computation is performed. Now, admittedly, this um, machine only has five bits, or quantum bits, um, as they're called, or qubits, but it can be used to run real quantum experiments. And because the power of quantum computing is so great, 
With only 50 qubits, you should already be able to do some things that classical computers that we have at the moment can't do. And that moment, that's perhaps somewhat ominously called quantum supremacy, that moment <laughs> is, is again almost upon us. Google has said that it hopes to have achieved it by the end of this year. Um, so some uh, researchers are saying that we're now at the point in quantum computing that is equivalent to uh, what was going on in classical computing around 1950. Whether quantum computers can make a significant change to, uh, to artificial intelligence remains to be seen, but if it's artificial intelligence that relies on trawling databases or trawling the available solutions, then certainly quantum computing seems to be, you know, that seems to be one of the tasks that it's well set up to do. And let's just say Google is definitely working on it. Any debate about, uh, uh, debate about AI has to start with a discussion of what you mean by that. And if you mean machine learning, that can, so a computer can use past experience to get, find better solutions to future problems, then it's uh, quite likely that it will continue its rapid ascent. Already problems like voice recognition and face recognition are more or less solved. If you mean writing novels that will engage and move and inspire us, that's something else entirely. If you mean the human capacity to generalize between seemingly unrelated experiences or problems, that too is entirely another matter. If you mean, will AI make Brexit a success, you've really <laughs> gone into the realms of fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> but what people, really, uh, what people often want to know is whether an AI system can become conscious. And there's uh, a very nice chapter on this uh, by Margaret Bowden, as you would expect, in, in, uh, in, in, in this book about this issue. I want to add just a few brief suggestions and observations about that. The first uh, suggestion is, uh, the first point is to say no one actually knows what consciousness means. Some people think they do, but no one really does. The second is to say, don't get too hung up on the so-called Turing test, which, of course, begins uh, the, in the, the first Blade Runner. Um, Turing never meant it to be some benchmark of uh, what AI could do, and it shouldn't become that. Um, there's absolutely no reason to think that there's some threshold of computational complexity beyond which consciousness, whatever it means, will emerge. We, all, we, we know actually far too little about what modes of thinking, if you want to call it that, AI systems engage in. And we assume far too readily that AI and human cognition somehow sit on the same graph. There's no guarantee of that. Um, and then this last one rather disturbs me. We don't know what, if any, evolutionary value consciousness has or even whether it's adaptive at all. Certainly things like altruism aren't contingent on having consciousness. So that's something to think about. So let's mash all these things up together, and uh, this will be some people's dream and some people's nightmare. It's the, one of the grand visions of transhumanism. So you get extremely delicate sensors to read out all the information encoded in your brain, you convert that to digital form, all this information about the networks, the weights of all the interconnections amongst them, um, and you store it all in some massive computer memory. And so the argument goes that you then have a digital recreation of you. 
And if you accept the idea that our entire consciousness, whatever that means, is physical material in our brain, then clearly it's finite in some respects, and you can at least estimate the number of bits of information needed to encode it. One estimate of that gives it a, a number of something like 10 to the 18, which is not astronomical. Couple this to a robotic body that's equipped with sensors, at least as sensitive as human faculties, and you've got an immortal existence enhanced with powers beyond limit. Okay, so no one's going to argue that we're close to that goal yet. The best science fiction never really is about predicting the future. It uses the inventive freedom that the future offers to explore the anxieties of today. And so when that promised future of jetpacks and moon bases and robot servants doesn't materialize, we shouldn't complain. That was never the point. Technologies are rarely, if ever, foisted upon us, even if it feels that they are. They arrive because, as a society, we accept and welcome and, ultimately, we normalize them, often to the extent that they become more or less compulsory. So futurology can and, and, and must hold up a mirror to ourselves. So when we imagine this transhumanist future, when we're immortalized by melding our minds and bodies with information technologies, it's that fantasy that's revealing and that we need to think about. It tells us, for example, that one driver of new technology will be this yearning we seem to have to live forever. That doesn't mean that we'll achieve it. Perhaps we'll realize that that yearning is really about something else entirely, and we'll go there instead. So I, I, I imagine I, perhaps I've spiked everyone's cannons now, so I will, <laughs> I will stop talking there. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Over to you, Julia. Yes, back down to earth. Because um, whatever we, however clever we are, I don't think we'll ever be able to control the weather. So um, just, that's just something to start with. Um, so I'm going to talk about climate change and, um, and really answer this, can scientists predict the future? Well, actually, um, let's go back over 120 years to a man called Arrhenius, who was a Swedish scientist, and in 1896, actually, he made the first pr prediction of climate change. And uh, some years later, he wrote a book on, called Worlds in the Making. Sounds a bit like this book, but written in 1908. And uh, he wrote, any doubling of the percentage of carbon dioxide in the air would raise the temperature of the Earth's surface by four degrees. And if you read any of the latest climate change assessments, it's slightly less than four degrees, but it's four degrees there or thereabouts. And then he goes on to say, or oh, if we increased it fourfold, the temperature would rise by eight degrees. He then went on to be a lot more optimistic than we are today, but nevertheless, he made a prediction, and he said, by the influence of the increasing percentage of carbonic acid in the atmosphere, CO2 for us, we may hope to enjoy ages with more equable and better climates, <laughs> especially as regards the colder regions of the Earth, ages when the Earth will bring forth much more abundant crops than at present for the benefit of rapidly propagating mankind. <laughs> So this is over 100 years ago. And, uh, well, we now know that actually climate change probably won't be quite like that, though we think that, you know, 
there is CO2 fertilisation and we think crops might grow better, all else being equal. And of course we know that uh, mankind is indeed rapidly propagating. Um, let's fast forward to the late 50s and now this very iconic curve of the uh, CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere from the Mauna Loa Observatory. And um, I started my career in the Met Office writing climate models. And in 1978 or so, I wrote a paper on uh, what the effects of doubling CO2 might be. And it went in a book called Carbon Dioxide, Climate and Civilization. Or society, sorry, I should say. And at the time, I think, you know, I thought, well, this is sort of vaguely interesting because, you know, we started just below 320 ppmv and we were then sort of just about heading up to 330. And, well, you know, we didn't really think too much about that, except to note that, of course, for 800,000 years through glaciers and interglacials, the carbon dioxide concentration never exceeded 280. So that's an important number to remember. Fast forward 1990, first IPCC report, and Margaret Thatcher, the then Prime Minister, founded the Hadley Centre in the Met Office. And here we are today. This is the latest graph, October. We are now well above 400. So we've gone from pre-industrial of 280 to 400. That's a lot. And we know that carbon dioxide is rising, but actually it's rising really, really rapidly much more rapidly than at any other time in the past. Um, so should we worry about that? Well, um, yes, we should. And one of the things that I started off uh, building, as I said, was climate models in the Met Office. And I think now as we go into the 21st century and we look at a lot of science, it's about the science of simulation. So when I talk about a climate model, I'm actually talking about a very complex simulation on a very large supercomputer. Not sure how we'll ever use quantum computing. We haven't worked that one out yet. Um, exascale is, big, is a big enough step for us. But a lot of what we do through the 21st century will be about simulation. Um, and this is um, a simulation from a climate model. This was run actually quite a few years ago on a very large supercomputer. Um, uh, in Europe. Um, and what you can see here is not the climate, actually. This is a simulation of the weather. Because to simulate the climate, we have to simulate the weather. And as the saying goes, climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. And when we think about climate change, it's going to be about what's my weather going to be like, where I live through the seasons and through the years. So this is what we have to do, and if you're a meteorologist, you'll know that this is not actually frightfully good in the tropics, but in our neck of the woods, this is an amazing simulation. This is actually of clouds, where the clouds are shaded depending on their height in the atmosphere. And if you watch this long enough, you can see the sun going round and, and warming up, darkening the continents, and you can see the clouds build up as the sun comes past, and you can see some uh, typhoons and hurricanes forming. So this is what these simulations are, but they have been a revolution in the last few decades, not only in our understanding of climate change, but also in weather forecasting. They're the same basic fundamental codes that we use in weather forecasting. 
So here we are. So um, should we worry? Well, this is uh, a thousand years of global mean surface temperature, near enough. And uh, you can see the uncertainty in the measurements. And here we are uh, leaving, entering the Industrial Revolution. And you can see where we're heading up here. And a lot of people have argued about whether this is anything special. The point is that it doesn't matter that our climate has changed in the deep past and through glacial and interglacial cycles. The important thing now is that, at least in terms of human civilization and the society in which we live today, where we have so many people on the planet compared to the number that were on the planet throughout this period here, uh, this rise in temperature is important and cannot be ignored. Then, of course, the remarkable thing that is when, because we can simulate the climate system, we can also do experiments and say, well, what would happen in the future if I continued to increase CO2? That graph that I showed you continued to go up. Um, and it's more than that. The remarkable thing about these models, and that, that was global mean surface temperature that I showed you before, and you kind of think, I don't really understand that. What does a two-degree warmer world feel feel to me as a human being. Here's European summer temperatures, and this is a whole different kettle of fish. But because we can simulate the climate, we can ask some really interesting questions about what the world might be like, or the world would have been like, if we hadn't emitted all those greenhouse, gas greenhouse gases. And the same thing going forward, we can ask the question, what will our world be like in the next 100 years, depending on what we decide to do with energy generation and so forth and so forth. And here you can see the green is the world that would have been if we hadn't put all that CO2 into the atmosphere. And what you can see here, of course, is that it's pretty stable, like the observations were. But now the observations no longer lie within the world that would have been. And so we know pretty sure, because we can simulate and look into the future, that it is due to us. That's why the climate is changing on this occasion. And it's changing really, really fast. So fast that many ecosystems will struggle to adapt. Um, so what are the 21st century challenges? Well, I often show this picture. And in the blue is what I think are the great challenges for the 21st century that relate to those sustainable development goals. It's not just about climate change. Because that in itself is an issue, but it's about the fact that it's happening in the context of urbanization, in the context of population growth, and especially in the context of limited natural resources. We just have this planet, and of those, the natural resources on which we depend, water is probably the most precious and which will affect our future most profoundly. So when we think about what it all means for us, well, I think it's, you know, we can say now with some confidence, actually, and we see this time and time again, as we've seen this summer, in fact, with hurricanes, with wildfires in Portugal and Northern California, in California. We're seeing water shortages around the world. We're seeing extreme heat. That all these things threaten to derail the sustainability and economic development and social welfare across the globe. So it's remarkable we have these simulations that can seriously tell us about the world we're heading into. And so, yes, 
Water will be the Earth's most precious commodity. There's no doubt about that. We've already plundered the aquifers in many parts of the world. If you go to the Ganges Valley and talk to a farmer, he will tell you that he has to dig deeper and deeper to find his water uh, to irrigate his crops, and so on. Many of our rivers no longer reach the sea, and so on. So this is going to be a real limiting factor for how we develop through the next few decades. Heat, um, too hot to work outside, too hot to live for some people. This is something, I mean, how do you maintain your infrastructure? How do you build new buildings? How do you build the cities of the future if humans can't survive in the heat outside? This is much more serious than I think we've really thought about. And for some people, it's the end of their livelihoods. This is the Inuits who are facing loss of their livelihoods, of the, uh, their ways of, of fishing and catching uh, seals and so forth, and, and how they can live because of the melting ice. And equally, on the low-lying island states, people are being displaced now by rising sea levels. And one of the things that for sure will become more and more important is that actually climate change affects many human rights. This is going to become a question about justice. It's, it will be a question about those of us who have led to the world that we now live in, the climate warming that we're seeing, helping those who don't have the means to help themselves. And as this says, it undercuts the rights to health, to food, to water. It may even affect the right to self-determination. So these are big issues that we have to grapple with, but we don't go into them blind because we can see the future. And I just wanted to end, actually, with... Um, a quote from a, a friend of mine. He was the first British-born astronaut that flew on the shuttle a number of times and went to the space station. His name was Pierce Sellers. And he was a climate scientist, and I knew him years ago when we were writing climate models together. And uh, um, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in December 2016. He died just before Christmas um, this last year. And, uh, sorry, he, he, he died this year, he, he wrote in December 2015. And he wrote in the New York Times, um, I think quite a, an important little piece about his hopes and his views for the future. And he wrote, new technologies have a way of bettering our lives in ways we cannot anticipate. So what he's saying here is that we may look at some of the things we're being asked to do to deal with climate change and thinking that they will be negative effects on us. But as he says, there is no convincing demonstrated reason to believe that our evolving future will be worse than our present, assuming careful management of the challenges and risks. History is replete with examples of us humans getting out of tight spots. The winners tended to be realistic, pragmatic, and flexible. The losers were often in denial of the threat. As an astronaut, I spacewalked 220 miles above the Earth, floating, along inside, along, floating alongside the International Space Station. I watched 
hurricanes cartwheel across the ocean. The Amazon snake its way to the sea through a brilliant green carpet of forests. And gigantic nighttime thunderstorms flash and flare for hundreds of miles along the equator. From this God's eye view, I saw how fragile and infinitely precious the Earth is. I'm hopeful for its future. It is the only Earth we have. It's our only place to live. And actually, clever people who are thinking up of new technologies, new solutions, um, will help us deal with what the weather and climate will undoubtedly throw at us. And hopefully, we'll be able to predict with more and more certainty. Thank you, Julia. Now, a, a change of, uh, of scene to biology and genetics. Arity. I feel like taking a moment's silence. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going to speak about genomics and genetic engineering. And genetics is the field of biology that's commonly described as being concerned with inheritance, and it is, but it's far, far more than that. If you look, if you study the genetic code, and you study genomics, and genomics is simply um, the mapping and collection of sets of data from genes. This provides some very, very crucial information about how our cells function. It tells us how we work at the most fundamental levels in health and in disease. Genetic engineering is what we have been doing for a while, but I would more accurately term it genetic manipulation because we've been making small changes to our DNA sequences. I think the future is genetic engineering, and that includes synthetic biology, which I won't be speaking about today. Um, but manipulation is something we've been doing in the lab for decades, but it's something we've been doing as humanity for far, far longer than that. That's how this regal animal 12,000 years ago that our hunting ancestors um, used to work with ended up being something that people now put in large handbags. <laughs> um, our environment and the food we eat, natural, again, manipulated. Even the chickens we eat in Nando's today are not even what they were a thousand years ago in medieval times. And all of these things have been influenced by various factors, including religion and politics. Genetic manipulation or engineering in the future probably won't be that much different from what we do now. Um, it will use new tools. But sh for sure, it will be less haphazard and far more targeted and far more precise. And the reason we can do that is because we can read the human genome. Um, and, and we can work with that. And as it is often said, these technologies will get um, better and cheaper, but also faster. And what's really important for me and important in terms of the SDGs is that they will get more and more accessible. So here are some examples of the kind of technology that you will begin to see on your doctor's desks or even at home next to your Fitbits and your um, glucose blood monitors. This is essentially a sequencing machine. It's the size of a USB stick. It has the functionality of a USB stick. Inside of it is a chip. On that chip, there are hundreds of wells. Um, and in the wells go the samples. The samples is, um, come from your saliva or a drop of your blood. Um, 
And the inventor, Chris Tumazu, who's at Imperial College London, was interested in using this for diagnostics. So this doesn't sequence the entire genome, but it doesn't have to, because what it's looking at is particular sequences of DNA that are important in your predisposition to disease or in particular mutations. It works in 20 minutes and sequences in real time and data is transmitted uh, to your computer. Chris is now working on a, um, a similar sequencer that's looking at the viral load of HIV. This is, this is really important because if you think about um, HIV testing today, it takes more than three days. You need to send a blood sample off to laboratory. Just think about where the countries with the highest burden of HIV are and whether they have access to laboratories and whether a blood sample that they take is going to be degraded in the time that it's sent. And you can see how utilitarian this is. A proof of concept, there's a, a, a similar sequencing device you can see on the image above, which is called a Minion. That has uh, 2,000 wells um, in the size of a USB stick. And it was taken out to West Africa during the recent Ebola outbreak. And it was used to identify sequences from patients who were infected with Ebola. Ebola mutates rapidly. This is a problem because when a virus mutates rapidly, it's very hard to diagnose it. It's very hard to track it and it's very hard to contain it. By being able to identify the strains of Ebola that people had, you could then use that data to track where the infections were coming from. And that meant that epidemiologists, experts in uh, infectious disease, were able to deliver care to where it was needed. Now, um, the inventors are working on allowing the sequencing to be used for other infectious diseases, chikungunya, dengue, Zika. Um, and this device, the, the USB stick, at the moment needs a computer and it needs a laptop in order to power itself up, but also needs um, a laptop in order to transmit data. What they're doing next is making something called the Smidgeye and they're working on, which as you can see goes into a mobile phone. Um, and that means, that you will have this technology where it's needed the most with a minimal amount of equipment. And on the note of mobile phones, predictions are that we will all one day be carrying around machines like this in our pockets just like mobile phones. And you might say, why would I want a DNA sequencer in my pocket? And that is a legitimate question. But I think... <laughs> that when you can carry something around in your pocket, you will find uses for it. I read, about a <laughs> I read about a person who used sequencing technology to um, find out which of his neighbor's dogs <laughs> were fouling his front yard. <laughs> so once we have the genome and we can read the genome, we can use the genome, we're going to um, be using it for more and more imaginative, in more and more imaginative ways. But I want to talk to you a bit about engineering. So um, this is a, a system called CRISPR-Cas, and you may have heard of it. It was, and this is about incremental progress, it was first seen in bacteria in 1993 at the University of Alicante. It took 20 years to figure out what it was doing in bacteria. It's part of the bacterial immune system, so it fights off bacteriophages or viral infections. And it took all of that time also for uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier um, to, to propose 
that this bacterial system, if transferred into animal cells, could also be used as a genome editing tool. Now, CRISPR-Cas9 is very often described as being molecular scissors. And as it implies, you take the scissors, you can chop out sections of gene sequences that are faulty, and you can replace them with a functioning copy of the gene. Now, um, CRISPR-Cas9 is not being used in the clinic right now, but that is the hope. At the moment, there are countless applications in the laboratory for studying how tumors develop, for looking at infectious diseases, and it's also being used in a, um, to treat mice in the lab, mice who have muscular dystrophy. But it's not being used in the clinic. That is the hope. Um, but in the meantime, some really brilliant science is going on that is even making this obsolete. It's making the molecular scissors look clunky and a bit like a, a flintstone because in the last week, two reports came out. And the first of them has created a method that rather than a pair of scissors snipping, it's using a precision laser type tool because it's looking at single point mutations rather than a whole gene. Much as Chris Timuzu says, why do you need to look at the entire genome when actually your diagnostics are on a few um, genes of interest? Why do you need to look at entire, an entire gene when an issue might be in a single point mutation? We know of 15,000 point mutation, that's one letter that goes wrong, that causes disease. Sickle cell is an example. One letter going wrong causes all the horrific symptoms that can come uh, with the disease. So the second thing that was reported last week was that maybe we don't need to even edit the genome in terms of DNA. Maybe we can edit RNA. So DNA is our source code. It's our instruction booklet. The language of DNA in our cells is transcribed into the language of RNA, and RNA is translated into proteins, and proteins make up everything. So this is how, this is how the process works. Um, the thing about using RNA instead of DNA is that it might get through some ethical minefields, because one of the objections that's often laid at genetic manipulation is you're, you're making permanent changes in the genome. That's heritable. You don't know what you're doing. You might be knocking all sorts of things out. But RNA is not permanent. RNA is not affecting the DNA at all. It's just helping the patients. In the same way, a group, the scientific group, are in the future going to work on the epigenome. The epigenome is an additional layer of control on the DNA. It's a chemical layer of control. And like all layers of control, things can go wrong, and they do. There are many conditions that children have that are epigenetic in origin, and they tend to deal, for various reasons, with disorders of growth, of nutrition, of cognitive, cognitive and behavioral disorders. So there are a lot of worthy, noble um, applications that are hoped to come out of this type of technology. But the real problem is we don't actually know how to get it in to the body. And that's something that's being worked out now. So expect in the future to see crispy chickens and pharmaceuticals with an F. And these are uh, animals that are transgenic. They're genetically engineered to carry that bacterial system, that bacterial CRISPR-Cas system integrated into its genome. For example, these are chickens that could lay eggs that carry a drug to help with high cholesterol. 
There's also talk of a CRISPR pill, and I, this is just demonstrative. I don't know what a CRISPR pill would look like, but this is thought of as being the next generation of antibiotics. Jim mentioned antimicrobial resistant. It's a massive, massive problem. This CRISPR pill that's going to be the next antibiotics is not delivering a drug that's going to kill the bacteria. It is convincing the bacteria to destroy its own genome. So CRISPR is going to pop up in a lot of places. Some of them are worthy, like saving bee colonies, and some of them are far more frivolous, like ordering your micropig or koi carp in um, customizable colors. And there's also talk of bringing back the woolly mammoth or the carrier pigeon from extinction. I wanted to end, but I, I know I'm, I'm not going to have enough time, but I wanted to end with something about the future of genetics that is neither about inheritance nor largely about medical um, applications. And that is because, you know, everything I've just told you, the whole genomic revolution was driven by the digital revolution, by the increase in capability and computing power. And by return, the future may see very interesting interfaces between what we've learned from DNA into the world of computing. Intel says by, uh, in 2018, which is a few months away, we will have reached our limit of miniaturization of devices. Your DNA um, is three billion letters. And the three billion letters live in the nucleus of the cell. And the cell is about 30 times, the nucleus, sorry, is about 30 times less than the width of one of your hairs. So this is tiny, this DNA is the storage of data. If you unraveled the DNA in your nucleus, it would stretch from London to Rio in Brazil. So DNA is a self-replicating, self self-learning, um, adaptable um, molecule that has been around storing data for going on for a billion years. Um, the reason I've got a Shakespeare sonnet up there is in terms of data storage, there was a proof of concept that I think they had stored um, sound and um, audio and text files, and one of them was a Beatles track, but they also saved um, all 154 sonnets of Shakespeare in this um, system. And we're also talking about uh, smart drugs because DNA computers can go where normal computers cannot. So think about um, a DNA computer being delivered to a part of your body where it's needed. And then there is um, analysis of physiological cues going on. And then there is the, the, the logical computations happening. And then it triggers the release of drugs or amendment to the expression of genes. So I think this is an area that's not, it's sort of surprising, and I think at the interface of disciplines is really where the magic happens. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, hi, my name is Anna Pajajski. Um, if you're wondering about the spelling of that, it's because I'm sponsored by Heinz Alphabetti Spaghetti. Um, and the rules are that I have to use all of the letters in order to complete that contract. So that's how that happened anyway. Um, I'm a material scientist. And um, tonight I'm going to be talking to you about my chapter, which is on really, really futuristic materials. For example, the pine cone. Um, 
not so futuristic maybe. Well, the pine cone is an example of a smart material, which is what my topic was on. Um, and smart materials, we've had them around for a long time, but the pine cone is an example of a naturally occurring smart material. Now, in chapter eight of this book, Naomi Clymer writes about the Internet of Things. This is about smart phones, smart watches, smart fridges, smart... I don't know, kettles, whatever. Um, everything in our lives is going to be smart. But smart materials are a bit different because these are materials, they're not connected to the internet yet. Um, these are materials that react. So they have a property, for example, their color or their shape or their magnetism. And this property changes in response to an external stimulus. So that might be light levels, temperature, moisture, uh, magnetic fields, pressure. Um, and... They do it without the use of robotics or electronics, but simply because of the intrinsic materials properties that they have. So what's so smart about a pine cone? Well, the pine cone is an example of a hygroscopic material. All that means is that it changes shape in response to increased moisture levels. So pine trees have worked out over however many millions of years of evolution that the best weather for them to sow their seeds is when it's hot and dry. Um, when it's cold and wet, seeds don't work, apparently. Um, so the pine cone has realised that um, with using this smart material, when it's cold and wet and the seeds aren't going aren't to sow, the material swells and that closes up the pine cone. That's the one on the left there. And then when it's hot and dry again and it's time to sow some seeds, the pine cone opens up again. The material shrinks back and then it opens up and you can sow these seeds. So a pine cone is an example of a really very advanced smart material. Um, and we've taken some influence, some, some inspiration by this by, as material scientists. So this is an example of an actuating smart material. That means it moves in response to a stimulus. Um, there's other examples of smart materials. Some are color changing, some are sensing, heating and cooling, self-healing, and some are phase changing, which just means freezing and melting. Um, and they sound quite futuristic as, as things, apart from the pinecone example, I guess. But um, actually, they've been around for quite a while. So these are the famous pyramids of Giza. And um, actually, four and a half thousand years ago, we painted on the pyramids of Giza a self-healing lime mortar. So the concrete, basically, that we use in these pyramids can heal cracks that form in it. That's probably why they're still standing. Um, but that was four and a half thousand years ago. Maybe we didn't realize it, but we still did it. Um, but we didn't really realise that these were smart materials. The first smart materials that came about and were recognised as such by scientists, um, they were discovered in 1880 by the far less famous and successful husband and brother-in-law <laughs> to the only person ever to have won two Nobel Prizes in two different subjects. Who am I talking about? Marie Curie, yes. Um, the Curie brothers, Pierre and Jacques, um, far less successful and famous. I think they've got Nobel Prizes, but anyone. Um, <laughs> uh, they discovered in 1880 that quartz crystals, which is what these are, um, if you squashed a quartz crystal, then an electric voltage appeared on the sides of it. And a year later, they discovered the opposite happened. If you put an electric voltage across a quartz crystal, then the material physically moved. And this was an amazing discovery because suddenly material scientists and engineers and inventors, they started to rethink their approach to materials design because now materials and solid objects could do things, whereas before they were just things that had stuff done to them. So this discovery of quartz as a so-called piezoelectric material um, 
this... That was really distracting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this discovery of quartz appears of electric crystal um, really sparked off a, a revolution in smart materials. And so now we've got hundreds of examples of smart materials that have been um, invented or discovered. And there are millions of patents which use them. But the example of an application that I wanted to talk to you about tonight looks like this. This was drawn in the year 1488 by Leonardo da Vinci. Um, and this is Leonardo da Vinci's flying machine that he drew and I don't think ever developed. Um, and he drew it because he was observing the flights and the wings of flying animals, birds and bats. And again, evolution has really got an advantage over us here because birds and bats have evolved to have the best wing shapes and the best wing designs. So if you ever watch the flight of a flying animal, they'll move their wings and the wings will change shape. They'll flatten them towards their back or they'll open them out. Um, and Leonardo da Vinci observed this and he thought, that looks like a good idea. I'm going to design a machine. So this was his design. And it's very different from the aeroplanes that we all fly around in today. Right? Our aeroplanes, they're pretty stiff. Like the, the Wings are very stiff. There's a few moving parts, but they're a bit clunky. And actually, I'm sorry to tell you, they're not really optimised for the best flight. Um, it's kind of an average, right? But the birds and the bats tell us that the wing shapes have to change massively if you want to get the best aerodynamic forces and if you want to get the best, uh, the most efficient flight. And so, at the moment, we don't really have the materials available to make this kind of design of aeroplane. However, smart materials could allow us to make an aircraft more like this. That would make our flight times shorter, it would make our planes more efficient, and it'd be a much smoother ride for us, especially in the face of climate change. So how will we do it? Well, lots of different smart materials. So the, the, the solid components there, which are meant to be mimicking the bones of the bats or the birds, um, these would be made out of shape memory alloys. These are metallic mixtures of nickel and titanium, and they move in response to being heated. But the cool thing about them is that they move into a shape that they've remembered that you told them about before. So that's why they're called shape memory alloys. And so they would be the, the metallic hard components in this aircraft, in this moving wing. You can see that da Vinci's got a stretched kind of um, skin-like membrane on his wing. And this skin would be made in the future out of shape memory polymers or electroactive polymers. These are materials that um, actively stiffen when you either put an electric current through them or you heat them up. And these would be necessary because if you can imagine a, a structurally moving thing underneath, you need a very stiff plastic material to withstand the forces of flight. But then you also need something that's going to be flexible enough to allow for the motion of the wings underneath. So these materials would be perfect for that. But I called this a skin, right? It was inspired by the skin of the animals, but it would be much more like our own skin than perhaps you realise. So the skin of this aeroplane would be able to be sensing. It could feel itself by either embedding piezoelectrics, like I was talking about before, or by using um, cool materials called quantum tunneling composites. Um, these materials will be able to allow us, or allow the aircraft, to sense itself and sense the forces that are enacting upon it. And finally, the skin will be very much like our own skin because it will be able to self-heal. I could do with some of that myself. I don't know if you can see, I've cut my finger. Um, this self-healing skin is actually made of a self-healing polymer. And this material will be able to heal itself in the event of some kind of rupture during the flight. So smart materials 
really do promise to revolutionise the way we live our lives. But the question that I'm sure you're all asking yourselves is, why haven't we got these aircraft already? And the answer to that is that smart materials are not perfect yet. Um, these are some of the problems that I've thought up, not limited to this list by any means. They're too slow, they're too delicate, um, it's difficult to put them into working things. Um, the switch threshold is difficult to control, toxic, expensive, difficult to make loads of them. Um, but these are not really that difficult problems to overcome. Um, and for any of the younger people in the audience, if you decide to become material scientists and engineers, you can solve these problems. And I think that's really exciting. And so in the future, we will probably start to see these smart aircraft. But the thought that I want to leave you with tonight is one of the thoughts that I have about material science while I'm sitting there writing my thesis is um, material science is cool because the objects that we create and the materials that we develop eventually will be the only things that we're left to be remembered by. So eventually our iPhones will be in a, rust, in a dusty museum somewhere. And even these smart materials one day will be old-fashioned. Um, and what will they say about us? What will our ancestors think about us in, in 2017 or in the near future based on these materials? Um, if they're looking at my PhD materials, they'll think everyone in 2017 just wanted to waste loads of time <laughs> making materials that don't work. However, if it's smart materials, I think they'll think something rather nicer, and I'd just like to finish with the concluding words from my chapter. The relationship that we have with materials is personal, complex, and telling of the prevailing thoughts and ideas of a particular epoch. When we are gone, I hope that these smart materials will speak of a human race that is sensitive, adaptive, and resilient in the face of often challenging and changing environments, reflecting the materials themselves. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. So now we're going to have the house lights up. We have roving mics. So anyone who has a question, please uh, raise your hand. Thank you. Um, can you imagine a royal institution filled not with people, but with artificial intelligence, um, having a bit of a retrospective on how humans very nearly messed up this delightful planet and looking down on some really good artificial intelligence, sitting in front of them going, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> those humans who led to us and have given rise to us artificial intelligence really did mess it up, but luckily... They saw the light just in time, and now <laughs> here we all are making a really good job of it. Will it happen? <laughs> Phil! <laughs> but, because you, 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 you said you didn't think that, uh, you know, uh, there will be sort of conscious artificial intelligence that is smarter than that, or will think the way we do. Uh, well, I, I, um, you know, you can rule nothing, nothing out, but I suppose I would answer by saying at the moment, I don't think the aim of anyone doing artificial intelligence is to replace us. doesn't mean to say it won't happen, but I think it's more likely that, that artificial intelligence is going to assist us, and I hope it is going to assist us in solving some of these problems, and I think it has the potential to assist us hugely in doing so. Um, but I think that if we don't end up with, you know, a, a, a room full of artificial intelligent 
beings, it won't be because necessarily because that's scientifically impossible. I think it will be more likely because there has been no need for that. Um, that you know, I think that, that it is serving different objectives to the things that we have an ability to do particularly well. I was yeah. just going to say, your question sounded just reminded me of Julia's talk because that's something our generation can say about our parents' generation too. Look at these guys who messed everything up, but hopefully someone stopped in time and saved the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is true, isn't it, that, I mean, when people talk about the worry of AI, it's always it's Skynet and it's, it's the machines that are smarter than us that are going to take over the world and decide that, you know, we are surplus to requirements. Whereas, in fact... The real ethical problems of AI are, is that it's too stupid. You know, it's what do we do? How, how do we program a, you know, a computer to drive a car safely with us not having to worry about it? Or what do we do about autonomous killer drones that the military are using that, you know, go off and fl fly off and look at enemy lines? They don't just send back pictures and say that's where the bad guys are. No, they, they make their own decision as to whether to, to, to shoot them or not. So the, the, there are ethical problems about AI that we need to tackle that's with us today, mm -hmm. uh, and we're still a long way from having to worry about, about artificial intelligences about that, Skynet. that have the Skynet that have replaced you know, <laughs> biological people. <laughs> yeah, um, um, you, is my question's um, targeted to climate change. Um, you spoke about how global warming would, um, the increase in carbon dioxide would increase, would um, increase the temperature. Yet, several. Um, TV shows, um, TV programs, and different forms of media advertise the idea that an ice age would be a possible consequence of climate change. Um, how far from reality is that idea? I think this it's, is yours. <laughs> that is very far from reality. I mean, what I've talked about today is human-induced climate change, right? So it's about our emissions of carbon dioxide from burning very rapidly large quantities of carbon that's been sequestered over millions and millions of years, and we're just burning it at a rapid rate. That is something that just doesn't... It is not a natural process. Um, ice ages arise because of the change in the Earth's orbit around the sun or the tilt of the Earth with respect to the sun. And... Uh, that's something completely different. The timescales are much, much longer than what we're having to deal with today and what basically will shape the future of our planet in the next 100 years. Um, so one of the great confusions is that people talk about, oh, we've had climate change in the past and it'll all be fine. The climate is always changing. This time, it's completely different. In the past... The change in the orbit around the sun changed the Earth's temperature, which changed the functioning of the biosphere, which then changed the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. What we are doing is changing the carbon dioxide levels first. The temperature is a response to that through the greenhouse effect. And now we think the biosphere is going to respond too in such a way that certainly in the latter half of this century, we will be sequestering less carbon in the biosphere than we are currently today. So we will see an acceleration, potentially, of the temperature rise through changes in CO2 from the ecosystems. 
it's a very, very different um, situation, completely uh, uh, a non-analog situation. Thank you. So we did have a, a, a hand up here on, at the front, uh, and I'm just seeing if there's any... Oh, good. Okay, right. So we have one. You're next. <laughs> Thank you for a very interesting exposition of, of, of your fields. Um, we're here in the RI. We're all focused on science, but science is under a tremendous amount of pressure around the world, uh, particularly in the US, it seems, at the moment. So engagement with politics is going to be the way that all of these ideas can have a chance of coming to fruition. So what can science do to try and reinforce its, its, its standing, its, uh, uh, its truth-telling uh, in the face of the, the pressures that it has now? Who would like to say something about that? I think that's Philip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Any of you? Well, I can start while you gather your thoughts. I'll just say something to glib and not very intelligent, just to <laughs> give you some time. I mean, I, I think until recently, scientists have felt that, uh, you know, unless, you know, you work in an area which really does have some immediate ethical uh, problems, scientists were just focused on doing the science. I mean, leaving aside people like the Manhattan Project, for example. But uh, scientists, I think, increasingly, particularly now with the rise of, you know, people who feel that somehow opinion is more important or as important as empirical evidence, uh, scientists, I think, are finding that they have to stand up and be counted. And, and we're seeing more and more, not just, you know, sort of people like us writing books or through social media, but scientists coming out of their lab. I mean, one example, um, um, Arity talked about Jennifer Doudna, who was one of the, the inventors of the, the CRISPR. Uh, Cas9 uh, gene editing tool. This is a, a woman who will win the Nobel Prize, and we, many thought that she would win the Nobel Prize this year. You know, a wonderful researcher, but she doesn't spend any time in her labs anymore. She she is now full time involved in discussing and debating the ethical implications of the research. Uh, and I think scientists are starting to do that more and more now. You know, talking about what they're doing and justifying what they're doing, but also combating. The, the, the forces of irrationality that seem to be, you know, shrieking loudly, you know, because of, partly because of social media. Mm. Have you had a chance to think of something more yeah. intelligent? <laughs> no, I think I would, would agree with that. I, I just would add that I don't think actually this is anything new. No, and I think it's, it's, it's perhaps even dangerous to, th to think that it is. That, you know, the problem in the state isn't an anti-scientific movement. Uh, it, it's particular areas of science, and of course climate change being, you know, the big one. There's nothing, uh, as far as I can see, in the Trump administration that is sort of anti-science in the sense that it doesn't want to embrace technology. In fact, it is desperate to use technology for other reasons. Um, so I think it's important to target the problems effectively, rather than thinking it's the end of Enlightenment values. Um, you know, there are plenty of things to worry about um, fr from that point of view, but I think that they are concerns about their, their political concerns, and it's actually, I feel, it, what we really have is not an anti-scientific problem, it's a crisis of democracy. And that's really what we need. And scientists have a part to play in the discussion that that brings about, in particular in terms of what it means for education. 
let's say. Um, but I think that it's a much broader issue, and it would be a shame if scientists felt, you know, we personally are under attack, and so we have to defend our corner. It's a, it's a, it's a global social problem that we've got. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for telling us about your uh, thoughts. But when, what I was thinking is, when uh, AI robots could get maybe it's learned about what we know and where it could probably go to the future, but we can't progress enough. Do you think that maybe robots could think for us and could maybe find solutions for our current problems and the problems in the future? There's a, um, there has been some discussion about whether robots can do science and uh, whether they can not just crunch numbers, but whether they can come up with theories as a result of the, the input that they have, you know, mm -hmm. from, making, from making observations. And there was, was a team in, I, I forget which institution in, in the US, that uh, showed some kind of machine learning uh, approach that, uh, that, uh, out of which came scientific theories, so the knowledge in, in that sort of uh, context. And that's really interesting. You know, I mean, there are people, I think, who understandably say, well, maybe so, but the really important, the great science, the big leaps, are ones that go beyond some kind of, you know, rational cogitation of what you've seen. They involve they, they, things like imagination. Curiosity, creativity are essential, and whether robots can ever bring those things to scientific investigation, it, it, it really isn't clear. But I think that without a doubt, um, whether you're talking about robots or just you know general artificial intelligence or computing systems, you know already they've made absolutely immense differences to what we can do with science, as Julia showed with the the, the impact of computing um, on on understanding the climate. So I think without a doubt, they can be an incredibly helpful tool and will be all the more so in the future. But, you know, whether they can do science, I mean, I think it's a very interesting question whether um, they'll I, do I, that. I, I see no reason not. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is machine learning. You know, the <laughs> fact that, you know, you, you hear about artificial intelligence that uh, masters the Chinese game of Go and, and, and they're, they're, you know, it's... There's creativity there already. Mm -hmm. We're seeing artificial intelligence that are creating you know, works of art that by any measure we would say is original and is creative. So I think that's even happening now. I, I don't see, I mean, I th and this is a debate in, you know, among the artificial intelligence community, uh, and, and neither of us are sort of immersed in that f field in any, in any way, but there, there isn't any consensus view as to whether machines can be Artificial intelligences can be creative or have that spark of imagination that a, a human can. I don't think, I can't see any reason why. I don't see any, there's nothing magical about the human brain that couldn't be. Oh, controversial. Oh. <laughs> I'll take you on. <laughs> I'm not going there. Yes, there's the pixie dust that makes us different. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Um, so, Oh, right, sorry. Uh, yes. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I just ha had a question about um, climate change. You seem to... I understand that it's on a larger scale than we've ever seen before on this planet. And we... 
he seemed to have more in, input in the amount of carbon dioxide we put in our atmosphere. But why do you think we, we can't, it would be a lot harder to solve than, say, where, when the, the other peaks in history, like the Industrial Revolution and where, and in Roman times when those uh, massive dioxide increase from all the trees they cut down? Interesting. Why, why, why can't we solve this problem? We've got increasing carbon dioxide. Why can't we be clever enough to do something about it? I'm sure we will be. And I, but, but the problem is that will we accept the changes to our lifestyles that dealing with it might require? Or do we more likely have the ingenuity, I think, to transition to what we call a low-carbon or zero-carbon world where we generate energy and drive around in, in, in things that don't emit carbon dioxide or even uh, invent technologies that can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which are, are actually already being developed but not at big enough scale to bring that carbon dioxide level that's now at 400 and more back down to where it ought to be at 280 for the sort of climate that we would like to live in. Um, so it's, a, it's about economic will, it's about social will, and it's about scaling up technologies that are already being developed. So I think it's perfectly possible. The big problem, and as I talked about, is that uh, in the past, you talked about the Romans, I don't know how many people there were on the planet then, but not a lot. No. Um, and there are now an awful lot of us and going to be potentially 9 billion or so by in the next couple of decades or so. And um, that's the problem as well, that we have to feed and mm -hmm. keep those people healthy and keep them safe and allow their, them to have uh, the sort of life that we would like to have. Um, and that's the big challenge for the world. It's an awful lot of people to sustain on a single planet with its very limited resources. But not beyond the um, ingenuity of humans, I don't think. Julie, can I ask, what, what energy technologies do you think are the ones that could really make a difference? Oh, gosh. Now, this is way outside mm -hmm. my oh, field. <laughs> so, um, well, to be frank, it's not just about creating energy more ef effectively. It's about using energy um, more efficiently, about how we heat our homes and all those things, which could be dealt with now. The biggest question for me about... We have a lot of energy, solar energy, wind energy, tidal energy, all these things. Um, the big question is, how do you store it? And I think batteries... How we store energy is going to be the big breakthrough. I think probably in the next decade, actually. Once we can store energy efficiently, then you can go with electric cars, you can go with um, using wind energy, solar energy, and those sorts of things where there's intermittency. Provided you can store it, then mm -hmm. I think we have a solution. 
And that's all in the book, of and course. And that's you know, all in the by, book. By other contributors, just so, in case. You know. also in my PhD thesis, if you want to read that. <laughs> yeah. For example. <laughs> so, Which is also on sale. No, I yeah. don't know. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> there are lots of possibilities out there, actually. Um, I think this is going to have to be the last question, um, because we are running out of time. Yes, ma'am. I did listen to your radio programme where you interviewed the lady who discovered CRISPR-Cas. Jennifer, yes. And one of her main concerns was that the genie was out of the bottle. And whereas we in the West might be using it ethically, there are the possibilities that other countries might not be so ethical in their use in cutting mm. slices from the human genome. Arity, did you want to say something about that? I think, I think that that is true. There's no global regulation, and we see this problem, for example, now in stem cell science, where people go to places where there's less regulation, and the places you're referring to are some of them. Even if countries have regulation, ships are put outside of the jurisdiction of the country so that that can happen. Um, the thing about these technologies is they do have great potential and promise. As I said, they're not in the clinic yet. And they're not in the clinic for a good reason. If they worked and if they were efficient and safe, they'd be offered on, on the mm -hmm. NHS, maybe, or in a, in, a, in a health system that's regulated. But when people have conditions like muscular dystrophy, for which there is no cure, and they see that it's been treated in laboratory mice, they may well pay lots of money to go on a ship offshore somewhere. It's very hard. To, it's, it's very tied up in... If, if, if there's no cure, people tend to, to go for it. And yes, the genie is out of the bottle, but one country or region's legislation cannot dictate the others. And, you know, I don't... I, I, it's not a good thing, but people do say that had we had a regulatory system in the way that we have it now, we wouldn't have had bone marrow transplants or blood transfusions. Mm -hmm. A lot of medicine came out of wars. They came out of having no legislation. And what China is able to do now is allowing space for exploration that we don't have. So it's kind mm. of, it's a very grey area. I mean, people say, you know, it, it, it's morally or ethically wrong to, mm. to mess, to play God, mess with genes. But if you have a technique that can eradicate some mm. of these genetic these disorders, the is it not morally, ethically wrong not to use it? And the, everything this is dealing with are some of the most intractable diseases. Yeah, yeah. So we cannot, we don't have any yeah, other yeah, solution yeah. for it. Mm. Yeah. And is it also the case that having a regulatory system, I've heard this said that actually in this country we've got a fantastic regulatory mm. system that is the, 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 the envy of many other yes. countries and that people, it's one of the reasons why the UK has led the field in some of these areas because that's actually empowering. Yes, yeah. um, that, you know, if you know what your boundaries are, what you're allowed to do, and if you have a, 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 a liberal regulatory regime, which we do have, mm. that actually really helps research compared to a country where there is no framework. No one knows what they can do. Is that right? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, but right. I think um, being that there are different countries with different regulations, yes, people might pick and choose where they go and do mm. what you can. Oh, sure. You see that with fertility treatments. You see that with uh, commercial surrogate mothers. If you want something, you go and you get it. Mm. So, yes, absolutely, the UK is respected and... Um, and it's highly regulated, and science progress as well. But if you really wanted to <laughs> do something that you yeah, shouldn't be, yeah. you, there are places there's you places, can go, yeah. and I don't know how that can be. Mm. There is no body that has global oversight um, mm. which forces people to listen to it. There is no or else. But we yeah. shouldn't disinvent it. 
You, no, like Jim no, said no. in his opening, I mean... You can <laughs> never, you can what? never... And, and in a way, you know, mm. enlightenment is always better than Absolutely. ignorance. You can't disagree. But, we, you know, it's good to know. But then, along with that, comes the responsibility of knowing what to do with that, with that knowledge. Mm. It's responsible innovation. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have to, I'm afraid, draw this to a close. Um, we are going to be outside signing copies of, of What's Next, so do please come and, come, and, come and see us. But in the meantime, join me in thanking my, my four colleagues here, Anna Plazowski. <laughs> Arati, Julia and Phil. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll gain access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks. <laughs>